pray, and then we'll get into the story. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this time uh, that we have with each other now to celebrate the risen Christ. Father, I pray for each person here that wherever they find themselves in in life, Lord, uh, with you, I pray that today would be a day that uh, we each uh, connect with you and come to understand uh, the, the seriousness concerning the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you have provided a way for us to get right with you, that you have provided a way uh, for our sins to be forgiven once and for all. And we thank you that in Christ we can stand before you, assured of our relationship with you, assured of our life with you beyond this life. And so, Father, I pray that as we look at this story, uh, you would draw us closer to yourself. And it's in Christ's good name I pray. Amen. <clears throat> All right, so we're going to work through John chapter 20. On Friday, we met to, to look at uh, the death of Christ. We, we read right up to the, the, verse, the last verse in chapter 19. And they had taken Jesus off of the cross. They had um, put him into a tomb. And that's where the story ended. We pick up in verse 1. <clears throat> and we read, Now on the first day of the week, that is Sunday today, the day that we gather Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark. Likely she came at this hour because of the, the holiday, the Sabbath regulations. At the very first moment when she, according to Jewish law, could make her way, um, she went there to the tomb to pay her respects while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. Now they had taken a huge boulder and they had rolled it over the entrance, and then they had sealed it to ensure that nothing would happen to this body. This wasn't a normal sort of occurrence, but due to all of the, the nature and the events surrounding Jesus' death, they were trying to maintain the peace. They anticipated that there could be some, some problems, and so they tried to secure the tomb. And so she arrives, and she sees that this tomb, the, the stone had been rolled away. And in verse 2, so she, so she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom she had loved. So when she, or whom he'd loved, and so when, when she gets there, she sees the scene. She recognizes that there's a problem. She immediately turns around and she runs as fast as she can to the disciples. She goes to Peter. She goes to the apostle John, who is referred to in this, this book as a disciple who Jesus loved. He is the author he doesn't refer to himself by name. I think this is a display of humility on his part. Uh, he started out as this young guy with all of this, this spice and this energy, uh, so much so that when they were going through an area that was hostile towards Jesus, he says, Jesus, do you want me and my brother to pray that fire would come down and obliterate the people? And Jesus like, just don't worry about it. We'll go around. And uh, then he started naming him Son of Thunder. And so he took on this nickname. But after Christ was crucified and he rose, his spirit, his demeanor adjusted. And he just referred to himself, all I am is the man whom Jesus loved. And she said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. And this is like, there's, there's energy in this. 
It's so easy for us to read this story without emotion. Um, this story will, will be uh, different for me today. Uh, in the last you know, three weeks, I've lost two good buddies from the SEAL teams. And on Thursday, my dad was placed on hospice. And so, it, so this, the reality of like death is really close to me right now. And so Easter, as we celebrate this, this is a wonderful holiday. It's a great time, but the stakes are so much more than just Easter eggs and, and eating donuts and having a, like a great time. What, what's at stake here is our souls. Our, our, our souls, I heard an amen, so I'll amen back to you, whoever said that's wonderful. <laughs> you know, that's like the, um, like our, our eternal state is on the line. But as we enter into this story, these are just people who encountered Christ, who walked with him. They didn't have all the pieces figured out. And, and what, what we have is a woman who loved Jesus dearly. She goes to where he was buried a couple days previously, and she sees the grave disturbed. And so you have the grief of death, and then you have the grief of somebody doing something to, to a loved one. And so she goes to these guys and explains to them the situation that they've taken him out of the tomb. I don't know where he is. This is horrible. Verse 3, so Peter and the other disciple, that's John, they went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together and the other disciple ran faster than Peter uh, to the tomb first. Every year I say I'm not going to mention it, but I have to mention it. John's the young guy. Peter's the old guy. John is the one writing. Guys typically are pretty competitive. He wanted to document for history that he ran faster than Peter. He gets there first, but we'll see when he arrives as he's the younger guy. I'm convinced that the younger guy isn't as well acquainted with death. And there's, there's probably a more technical term, but I think he has the hibby-jibbies. So he sees and he's like, I don't know. Like, this is where his body was laid. I don't want to enter in and go into this, this location for fear of, like, just because death doesn't sit right with us. Verse 5, and stooping and looking in, this is John. Or excuse me, I think it's Peter. Well, we'll figure it out as we go. He ran fast to Peter, and Peter came to, he came to the tomb first, and stopping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. He's talking about himself. So he saw this first is this, in Greek. There's three different Greek words for to see. He glances in. It's blepo. Like he sees, okay, there's something going on. The body's not there. Uh, no, nothing more in the thought process. He sees the body's gone. There's no body there at his first glance. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there. This word is thereo. It's a word where we get to theorize. So he begins to say, okay, the body's gone. He's trying to piece together, like, what's happening here? His body's gone, but where did it go? Was, it wasn't out front. This is the tomb that we put it in, like, trying to come up with some sort of idea for the reasoning behind the body being missing. So he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lined with the linen wrappings but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple, John, who had first come to the tomb, also entered and he saw and he believed. This is a third word, oida. And I think this is like the light bulb goes on. He saw and he believed. I don't think that this is 
that he believed, oh, this is right. Jesus was going to be crucified, buried, rise again from the dead. I think this conveys the idea that the, the, the body's gone. This is really happening. This is where we put Jesus. His body is for sure not here, and he for sure is gone. And, and I think this because of verse 9, because of what he says. He says, for as of yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So we're still thinking in like human terms. This is their dear friend. He was crucified. He was killed. He was placed in this tomb. Now that all the, the drama of the event and the holiday weekend is over, they're allowed to go there. And something indeed happened to his body. Verse 10, so the disciples went away again to their own homes. So they go back to their place where they were. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. This is a terribly painful event. This is a loved one. This is, a, this is her Lord who had a profound impact in her life is an, un, like, an understatement. She's just there in abject grief, like weeping. And as she's weeping, as soon as I find my place here, stood out to verse 11, standing outside the tube weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked and went into the tomb. So she, she gets down to go in through the door and she looks in there to verify what they had seen. And she saw two angels in white one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. Clearly the angels are coming at this from a different perspective. They understand what has happened in this moment. She doesn't understand. They're asking the question, why are you weeping? You shouldn't be weeping. Your Lord Jesus has died for your sins. He absorbed the wrath of God that was due you. He conquered death. He's now ascended. He's now risen. Not ascended yet, but he's, he's risen from the grave. This is, this is cause for rejoicing. But she responds in a very normal, natural way from an earthly perspective. They've taken away Jesus, and we don't know where he is. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she doesn't know it's Jesus. So she turns around. She sees Jesus outside of the tomb. She doesn't recognize him. and She's going to think that she's uh, the caretaker of the cemetery or a gardener. And Jesus said to her, verse 15, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And so now she's, she's, getting, more, she's getting diplomatic here. She's like, okay, okay, I can calm down. This, this makes sense. The gardener's here, the, the caretaker. This is on when they crucified Jesus. It was a sort of a traumatic event. The holiday was about to start. Some guy asked if he could put Jesus in the tomb. And it was just a temporary situation. And so they're just, they're, they're relocating him. So his room changed. Like, okay, well, where's he at, sir? Like, let me just, just tell me everything will be good. I can go tell the guys and we'll take care of his body from here. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. 
She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabbani, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me. So John doesn't really record the actions, but in Jesus' response, we get an idea of how she responded. She's there. She's weeping, deep, profound grief. She goes into the tomb. The tomb is gone. She sees an angel. She's I'm wondering if she's thinking she's hallucinating, that she's so extremely tired. None of this is making sense. She sees a gardener. The gardener's talking. And in some moment, as the gardener starts talking to her, it clicks in her head that this is Jesus. And then she immediately grabs him, holds on to him. I'm imagining that she's kissing him. And I mean, she won't let go. And the the response from Jesus is like, stop clinging to me. Like, Like, back up, Mary. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. My mission here is not complete. But I need you to go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. This is like one of the first times that Jesus now refers to the Father in heaven that the barrier that was there is no longer there. Because of what he'd accomplished on the cross, she could now refer to the Father in heaven as her Father, her God. Jesus says he is our Father, our God. This is a huge line in the sand that has been crossed. And so she turns around in verse 18. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that he said these things, and that he said these things to her. So she goes back to the homes where they were located. She recaps everything that was said. And I'm not quite sure how they responded to her. They could have believed her. They could have said, well, if this is true, where is he now? Because he wasn't with her. I think their reaction, just because of, I think, oh, this has been a very stressful week. Mary, have you eaten anything? Why don't you sit down and have a glass of water? Have some food. You're stressed out. You're imagining things at this point. That's how I would treat this lady if this happened to me. Verse 19, so when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut, the disciples were for fear, uh, the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. So they're locked down. They're hunkered down. They're afraid because of all of these people that are in town. They're afraid because Jesus was crucified. They're afraid because his body was gone. They're afraid because before the crucifixion, there was concern that they would steal the body and then make the claim, the very claims that are happening. And so they are in isolation. They are fear, they're, they're bunkering down for fear of their own lives. And in the midst of this, when the doors are shut, Jesus came and stood in their midst. He just appears physically to them. He's no longer in his earthly body. He has his new resurrected body. He's not bound by the physics of this world that God has put into place. He appears to them. And I imagine this was a terrifying experience. And the first thing he says to them is shalom, peace. It's okay, guys. Don't freak out. Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. So he shows the hands where the, the, the irons were, probably his wrists to hold him into place. He showed the side where they stabbed the spear into him to verify his death. 
And so they're having to process this, and he's letting them touch them to make sure that, that they understand that this isn't an illusion. They're touching the wounds. They're touching the side. And the, the light bulb is beginning to turn on in their minds. And the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, okay, I, you guys are probably a little bit traumatized the first time I, was, I spoke to you. So I'm going to say it again. Shalom. Peace be with you. And I don't think this is just a common greeting. I think this is saying, what I have accomplished now, you now have peace with God through me. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And so he's beginning to lay the groundwork for the Great Commission. He said, listen, I stepped out of heaven. I fulfilled this mission. God has sent me here. The Father has sent me here to be a light unto a dark world, a lost world. And now I'm passing the baton on to you. There's a mission that you have a responsibility to share this news with the world around you. And if you're here and you're a Christian, to think, like, I can't, I don't even think this is, I, mean, I do have a request into heaven. Like, we'll see if it's honored when I get there. Like, to think that when you came to faith in Christ, you heard the message that God certainly knows how that was traced back to this night. Like, did my message come through Peter? Did it come through John? Did it come through somebody else? Like, like we have a very clear, like, isolation. Like, maybe Peter, because he spoke to all of them. I don't know. This is God's going to say, Gunnar, you have some silly questions. Like, we're not going to deal with this. But, but to think, like, we're here today because of this moment. That as he said, so I came, I'm sending you, and they went. And the message has gone forth for 2,000 plus years. And for those of us in, in this presence right now, listening to this, celebrating this story as truth to our own, as something that God has done for us, it came through them. And it's, it's an amazing reality. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So he breathes out gives them the Spirit. There's a lot of questions, like the Spirit's given to them. Later in Acts 2, they would be sealed by the Spirit. And he says to them, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. And to me, I think this is very personal to them. Jesus is trying to get them, in my opinion, to understand that what has just happened to him wasn't an act of man. It was an act of God. It was an act of Jesus' will to go to his death. He had a mission to suffer the wrath of God. And I think of these guys. Who could they possibly be angry at? They could be angry at Judas. They could be angry at all of the people responsible for the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus. That they could be angry for what had happened to Jesus. And Jesus is saying, guys, don't be angry. Forgive them. Let it go. What happened to me, it happened because this was God's plan all along. This is the plan of redemption. You can let your anger go. You can let your bitterness go. Forgive them. And then we come to verse 24. But Thomas, one of the 12, called Didymus, which means the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Super bummer. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. Now we're really hard on Thomas 
but I'm with Thomas. Like I stand with him. Like, I, I mean, this is like, first it's Mary. Now there's 10 of you because, you know, Judas is gone. There's 10. It's like the, now the 10, really what's in the water here? Like, I'm going to have a hard time believing this. And if this is true, then certainly there'll be an opportunity for me to see the risen Lord where I can touch his hands too. And I can touch his wounds. He says, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I understand his position. I get his, his, position, his, position, his position. I think his position is very logical. I think his position is the position that the vast majority of us were t- would take if we were in his shoes. And so after eight days in verse 26, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. Again, he makes his same entrance. They're still there locked. They're still, still there concerned and afraid. Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here with your hand. And put it into my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Of course he has. And then Jesus says, blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. That's us. Therefore, many other signs, this is a commentary, a little piece of commentary from the Apostle John who lived with Jesus, walked with Jesus, witnessed his crucifixion, witnessed his resurrection, witnessed his ascension, witnessed the things of the early church, lived his whole life until he died naturally, the only one. He says, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. This is why Easter is so good. And if you were like me before I came to faith in Christ, I can hear my own doubts and my own concerns. Well, this is great. This happened in closed doors. This is a great, wonderful, fanciful story. I can see how this makes everybody feel better. But historically, that's not how the story unfolded. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd ask you to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I would like to introduce you to another man, the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was one of the greatest persecutors of the early church. And he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Verse 1, now I, Paul, make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I preached to you, which you also received, and which you also stand, by which you, are, by which you are saved. If you hold fast to the word which I have preached to you, unless you have believed in vain, for I deliver to you as of first importance what I received and he's going to talk about this story, this, this weekend in which Christ was crucified, in which he was buried, in which he resurrected from the dead. That Christ 
died for our sins according to the Scriptures. The Apostle Paul says, after I persecuted the church for a long time, and then I encountered the risen Christ, when I recalibrated my thinking, I went back to the Old Testament, and I started scouring the Old Testament to see, could this possibly be true? And he came to terms with the reality that the Old Testament spoke about this the whole time. And he says, when Christ died for our sins, it was there. According to scriptures, Isaiah 53 and other places where the scriptures long before Christ went to the cross and died foretold that the Messiah would come and he would suffer for our sins. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to scriptures. He said none of this was a surprise. We simply missed it. The scriptures foretold of this the whole time. Verse 5, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. So what he's saying, as Paul's writing this out, he said, Jesus appeared to Peter. Jesus appeared to all of the apostles. Then Jesus appeared to 500 men. He only includes men. Women could be included in the actual encounter of Jesus, but for legal purposes during the time, only a male's testimony could stand in court. So he says 500 men. But then the most important thing that he writes, I think, is he says, when I write this, the vast majority of these people are alive today. You can go to them. You can ask them questions. You can hear their testimony of speaking to the risen Christ. He doesn't say, oh, all of them are dead now, and you just kind of have to trust me on this one. He says, no, you can go to them, you can research, you can investigate. The vast majority of these people are alive today. Verse 7, then he appeared to James, Jesus' brother, who later, after his resurrection, would become a believer. So James is Jesus' little brother. Little brothers don't always think that their older brother is God. James was a persecutor of Jesus through his earthly ministry. He was not a fan at all. Suddenly, Jesus is crucified. He rises from the dead. Now his brother has a different perspective. Then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So Paul says, he encountered me. I saw, I touched, I encountered the risen Christ. And he says, for I'm the least of all the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. If you're here and you're a skeptic, I doubt you have gone as far as to kill as many Christians as you possibly can. Paul said, I was killing Christians for their testimony because I was so against it that they had hijacked the religion that I knew and believed. But by the grace of God in verse 10, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I'd labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. Whether it was I or they, so we preach and you believed. He said, we proclaim that Jesus died for your sins. He's risen from the grave. He has conquered death. And he says, it doesn't matter whether it was me or whether it was them. So long as you heard the good news and you've placed your faith in Christ, 
That is the only thing that matters. Verse 12. He's going to address skeptics because he was one of them. And as he speaks, he's going to speak to those who he identifies with. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith also is in vain. Without the resurrection of Christ, this is all worthless. This is absolutely pointless if Jesus hasn't risen from the grave. But he's not done there. He says it's even worse. Moreover, we are even found to be a false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep, that's dead in Christ have perished. He's saying there's nothing beyond. They, they are not alive with God. They are in hell and damnation apart from their creator. Verse 19, he says, sort of like the nail in the casket. He says, if we hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. There, there is no value in the placebo effect with Christianity. If you're coming to Christ and you say, well, I don't really believe, but if I live my life according to these rules and I'm good to people and I do these things, then it's worth it. It's good. That's not, the Bible doesn't support that. The, the Bible says you should be pitied. If we're here and Jesus didn't raise from the dead, we're wasting our time, we're fooling ourselves, and we're absolutely foolish and we should be pitied by people because this is, just, this is just not reasonable. And that's how a lot of the world feels about us. If you, I mean, that's, that's okay. But that's not where Paul ends here. Paul says in verse 20, but now Christ has raised from the dead. That changes everything. Uh, he says, I saw Jesus rise from the dead. He would take this testimony to his death where he was put to death for his testimony. He says previously that the other apostles, they would take it to their deaths, testifying that they saw and touched the living Christ after they saw him die. This isn't just some make-believe story. And he says, the first fruits of those who are asleep, for since by a man came death, that's Adam. By a man also came the resurrection of the dead, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And so today we're here on Easter to celebrate the risen Christ. And my prayer is that if you're here and you don't know Christ as your Savior, that you would do your research or just surrender in your heart and say, I believe. That's what the Bible says. At belief, you're saved. Paul would write in Romans 4, Verse 25, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions, that's what Good Friday was about. And he was raised because of our justification. His resurrection 
authenticates who he was and his qualifications. Any of us can die on a cross, but not, none of us have the qualifications to be the substitute for the world's sins. Only a God-man has those qualifications. And because he came and lived the perfect life, because he loves you and he cares about you, he was put to death. And then he rose, and the offer to you is simply believe. C.S. Lewis said it well. Christianity of false is of no importance. And if it's true, of infinite importance, the only thing it cannot be is moderately important. There is no middle ground with the claims of the Bible concerning who Christ is. And so my prayer is for those of you who maybe don't believe that you would come to a place where you can place your faith into his work on the cross because you have sins that are going to be dealt with by God. And for those of us who have believed, today is a great celebration and joy because we can go into death and face death knowing that we can, we can grieve. Like, yeah, sure, I'm, I'm like sorrowful for my buddies who have died. I'm sorrowful for the transition that my dad's going through. But in the core of my heart, I know that my dad has a relationship with Christ And so for him to pass from this life to the next life, there's joy here that he will go to be with the Lord. And if he didn't, it's a much different story. And so I'm thankful that in Christ, I have hope beyond this life. Pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the promises that began early in Genesis. As soon as humanity fell, as soon as sin entered the world, you revealed your plan that a Messiah would come, that he would grapple with Satan, but ultimately he would conquer death. We thank you, Lord, that there's so much evidence supporting the life of Christ. There's so much evidence supporting his death, burial, and resurrection. But it's not just about having information in our heads. Father, I pray that you would help those of us who are struggling with the claims of the Bible, that you would help that knowledge to move 18 inches south to our hearts and that we would bow before you, surrender our lives to you, trust in you for salvation. We pray, Father, for those of us who have given our lives to you, that as we sort of Reset today and remember the essence of what Christianity is. The jugular vein is Jesus. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to live our lives walking closely with the risen Lord who desires to communicate with us today, who desires us to pray, desires to, to lead us, to guide us, to help us through good times and difficult times. That you're not just some God that's distant from us, We pray, Father, that you would move us deeper into relationship with you. We love you, Lord. And it's in Christ's good name I pray. Amen.